Amen. Lord, that's so true. The reason that we live is to worship you, to know you and to make you known. You're such a great and an awesome God. I can't imagine living life without you. Lord, I pray right now as we go to the word that you would be our teacher. Just give us all ears to hear what your spirit would speak to the church this morning. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Again, if you didn't get a Bible a little while ago, raise your hand. You're going to need it. We, have, we do teach the Bible here, so I want to encourage you, get a Bible, all right? It's helpful. Read the book, don't wait for the movie. Now, Romans. Been a great study as we've gone through the epistle to, to the church in Rome, written by the Apostle Paul. And as, again, just to catch you up real quick, as we went through the Gospels, we saw the words and works of Jesus Christ. We saw that Jesus is God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. There is no other God beside Him. Then we we saw Him ascend back into heaven, and as He went back into heaven, He promised to send them a helper. And in the book of Acts, we saw that the Holy Spirit came upon the first century church. They spoke with great boldness. God used them mightily to turn the known world right side up. Now as we come to Romans, we see that Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome, a church he has never visited, a church that he would soon visit, a church that he had a burden for, a church that was growing, a church that was going to face persecution. And if you know anything about history and the, you know, the Christians being thrown to the lions, that took place in Rome. And as this church was growing, he sent them this this great epistle that is the best uh, epistle on doctrine or biblical truth of anything in the Bible. And what we've seen so far in the first three chapters, we saw the doctrine of sin. We've talked about the fact that what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. And the doctrine of sin teaches us that every one of us is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's in Romans chapter 3. Now, after the doctrine of sin, the first three chapters of Romans, we move to the doctrine of salvation. And what this tells us is that, yes, we are sinners, but there is an answer. And the answer, again, is that, that we can have salvation, we can be justified just as if we've never sinned through repentance and a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first three chapters is the doctrine of sin. The next three chapters was the doctrine of salvation. We then moved on to the doctrine of sanctification. And what that means is not just Jesus died for me, but the Holy Spirit or Christ living in me. As Christians, it's not just believing in Jesus or knowing that there is a God, but living a transformed life. And that's what happens when you give your life to the Lord. You know, often you'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I I believe in God. Well, believing in God is not enough. Amen? The Bible says that demons believe and tremble. So believing that there is a God and having a personal relationship with Him are two totally different things. And sanctification is about living a life set apart unto the Lord, growing in a relationship with Him. Yeah, I got the get out of hell free card, I'm not going to hell, but you know what? Now I'm walking with Him, and I'm filled with His Spirit, and I'm growing in a relationship with the Lord. And then lastly, as we moved on from there, we saw, and and just real quickly, there were two extremes that we saw in looking at sanctification, things we need to be careful of. One of them is license, and and what that is is that, hey, you know what, I I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, and I can live however I want. And the reality is that as Christians, we should walk in holiness. Now, we don't walk in holiness so God will love us. We walk in holiness because God loves us. Amen? We don't try to be holy so we can be good enough for God, because you can't be holy enough. That's why Jesus had to die for you. The other extreme, though, is legalism. And that's where, you know, okay, Jesus died for me, but now I've got to keep 900 rules to make God happy. And sadly, you see too many, so many people that call themselves Christians just walking around burdened all the time. I've got to keep all these rules, and I, and I fail. And the reality is that just as if you've never sinned, you've been forgiven. And so then we move from there, from the doctrine of sin, to the doctrine of salvation, to the doctrine of sanctification. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the doctrine of sovereignty. Now what is sovereignty? Sovereignty is just a big word that simply means that God is in control. Does God know everything? What's the answer? That was weak. I know it's summertime. Does God know everything? 
Yes, he does. Amen? And he knows the future, and he knows everything that's coming your way. And you know what? He's a faithful God, and he loves you guys so very much. And you know what? As he knows what's coming, it should give us a peace in the midst of difficulty. Because when it comes, God knew it was coming. And so we saw the doctrine of sovereignty. We saw that God knows everything. And that God, again, gives us all an opportunity to know Him. And then last week, we saw not only is God in control, but we saw that man has responsibility to respond to His love. God will never force Himself on anybody. God will never make anyone become a Christian. He doesn't grab you and stick you in the corner and pound on you until you accept Him. Amen? That's not the God we serve. Now, there are some churches that might act that way. There's some people that might come to your door and not leave until you accept what they're teaching, right? hand you a magazine or whatever it might be, right? But here's the reality. God is a loving God, and He holds His hand out to each of us universally, but it must be accepted individually. And what we've been seeing, God's sovereignty is that He loves us, He, he knows all things, He's in control, but at the same time, He gives us free will. And we've been talking about the fact that God can know all things, and we can have free will at the same time. Some people struggle with that. I don't know why. God's greater than us, Amen. And he can know the decisions you're going to make. It doesn't mean he made you make those decisions. So as we come to chapter 11, we move on and continue to look, the final chapter, really looking at the sovereignty of God. And as we come to this chapter, what we're going to see is that God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but he's also a God of incredible patience. Remember last week we saw that it said in Romans 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation is offered to anyone. But we also saw that those who would have the greatest opportunity to know God, the nation of Israel, was in rebellion and rejected Him for the most part. Now that's true even today. Again, are there many Jews who have been saved? Yes, there are. And we don't look at Jewish people in a, in a down way. We love them. God loves them. There's chosen people. Amen? And you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in God's eyes. We're all the same in His eyes. God doesn't look at skin color. God doesn't look at economic background. He sees our heart. But as a nation right now, even though they've had the greatest opportunity to know Him, His glory dwelt with them. Uh, He gave them the law first. They were the first ones to receive the truth. The reality is that Israel as a nation is in rebellion against God even to this day. Those of you who just went to Israel with us a few months ago, when you go there, you see that they're very religious and they're zealous but they're ignorant of the truth. And as we're going to see this morning, we're going to see that God is not done with Israel. Even though Israel is in rebellion, God still loves them, and He still has a plan for them. And there's an application to our lives as well. Because while they're in rebellion, God continues to reach out to them. And I titled the message this morning, Reaching Out to Those in Rebellion. You know, I want to say this. I believe that we're probably all in the same boat in that all of us, probably have people in our lives that we've been praying for for a really long time. And you pray for them, and you know, after a while, you just almost want to give up. Anybody ever felt like that before? Right? Oh, man, I've been praying for that guy for 10 years, man. If he hasn't got saved by now, he's never gonna, right? You ever had that kind of a prayer? And you get, just get burnt out and say, you know what, that, or you got somebody at work or somebody you know, and you think, that guy's so far gone, that gal is so far gone, it's just a waste of my time to continue to pray for him. And you know, if you looked at the nation of Israel, or if you looked at the United States of America, for that matter, and you saw how far away people have gotten from God, it's amazing that God continues to show grace. It's amazing that God continues to be merciful. It's amazing that God continues to be patient, but He is. And may you and I learn from that lesson that may we not give up because God has not given up. Amen? God has not given up on those people. You know what? Maybe you're here today, And you might be one of those people someone prayed for for years before you got saved. Aren't you glad they kept praying for you? Amen? And aren't you glad God didn't just give up on you? If you're still breathing in and out, God's not done. Amen? And God can still receive those people unto Himself. And again, may we not think that people are too lost or they've been gone so long that it's too late. May we we not stop praying or stop reaching out. We're going to see this example this morning in God's heart toward the children of Israel. How long have they been in rebellion as a nation? Now again, I want to make sure we understand this. I'm talking about the nation of Israel, not Jewish individuals, because many of them know God, all right? But the nation of Israel has been in rebellion for thousands of years, and God continues to bear with them. Again, an example for us. If you're coming on Wednesday night, 
They're wandering through the wilderness in the book of Numbers. And how are they doing so far? What do they do like all the time? What's the favorite hobby of the Israelites? Whining, right? Three million whiners. How would you like to be pastor in that church, right? Everywhere they went, oh, yeah, man, oh, man, I wish to go back to Egypt. They used to get beaten in Egypt. They want to go back, right? And the reality is that they were just murmuring and complaining instead of trusting God. The Shekinah glory of God was dwelling with them. They're encamped on the cross. They're headed to the land of promise, and they're moaning every step of the way. And we see that that has not changed, but I want to say that's not unique only to Israel because the world around us today is godless. And just as Israel is in rebellion, so too is the world that we live in. You know, it's sad what's going on around us. Hell, we're trying to take God out of everything. You notice that? If you haven't, you're not, you need to wake up. Amen? I mean, they're taking God out of everything. You know, it's supposed to be freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. Amen? And what they're trying to do is say, oh, we can't talk about God in school. You can have a homosexual club, but don't be talking about God. And what's happened is we've got our priorities all messed up. And so we see here, as we come to this chapter, that while Israel is in rebellion, that God still loves them and still has a plan for them in the future. And, we're, and you know what? God is going to bring great revival amongst Israel before it's over. Now when it happens, as we're going to see today, the church will already be gone. And we're going to talk about the end times a little bit this morning. I know a lot of people really like that, and we will. And we're going to see just again God's plan going forward for the children of Israel, but we'll see how it again has an impact on us. So in Romans 11, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that the rejection of Israel is not total. There's still a godly remnant. We're also going to see the result of their rejection, that the gospel came to the Gentiles. And then lastly, we're going to see that God still has a plan for them, that the rejection is not final. So Romans 11, reaching out to those in rebellion. Let's begin in verse 1, looking at the fact that Israel's rejection is not total. Though they as a nation are in rebellion against God, I think we could safely say that's true about the United States as well. Amen? We're in rebellion against God. Are we esteeming God high in this country? Is He the priority? Do we seek His face before we make decisions as a nation? Or do we mock God in the way that we do things? So Israel's in rebellion, but again, I want to make sure that we make it really clear that the Lord loves the Jewish people as much as He loves you and I. Amen? In his eyes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. So look at verse 1 of Romans 11. This is Paul speaking. Now let's go back to verse 21. I want to get set the context of the previous chapter. He says, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So God has been reaching his hand out to Israel. This has been going on for thousands of years, and they're rejecting him. And as we saw last week, they got their own plan for salvation. The analogy I used last week is if this building was on fire, and I told you that's the only way out. And you said, well, I, you know what, I, I need some options, right? Flames are kicking up around you. That's the only way out right there. Well, I'm thinking that, that's just too narrow for me. You know, one way out, I'm, you know, I, I'm more diversified than that. And I just, did being too narrow, Pastor Dave. I, maybe I can crack through that wall over there. Maybe I can run through this. And see, the reality is, that's kind of what the Jews were doing. God said, Jesus is the way. Here's the Messiah you've been waiting for. And they say, no, I'm just going to be real religious and keep the law. And I think maybe that'll be good enough for God. No, no, it's not good enough. This is the way. Well, no, I think we've got our own path. And he's reaching out his hand, and they continue to disobey him, and they continue to reject him. Verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. So he says that even though they're disobedient, even though God's reaching out to them and has been for thousands of years, he says, has, has he cast away his people? Has he given up on them? And the answer is, certainly not. Paul says God is not done with Israel. And look what his example is. I love this. Look, it says, For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So what does Paul use as his first example that God's not done with the Jewish people? He goes, look at me. I'm Jewish, right? God's not done with the Jews because I'm Jewish. And by the way, the first century church was almost all Jewish people. Virtually all the apostles, almost all the writers of the Bible were all Jews. And what he's saying is, even though the nation as a whole is in rebellion, there's still a remnant that loves God. But I want you to see something here that as I was studying last night, that God showed me that was pretty awesome. You know, Paul, three times his conversion is spoken of in the book of Acts. Now, how did Paul get saved? Do you remember he was on the road to what? Damascus. 
which means, it means bloody place or, or pool of blood or, or pail of blood. That's what it means, literally. And he's on the way to the road to Damascus, and what's he go, heading there to do? To do what? To persecute Christians. He's got his robes on, and he's as religious as they come. And, you know, hey, man, he was like the pope of the day, right? He's one of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, had his robes on, and people bowed to him, and he had papers in his hand, and he was going to whoop up on some Christians. And he's riding along on his horse, and what happened? God knocked him off his high horse or his high donkey, whatever he was riding, right? And he fell to the ground, and what did he say? Lord. He said, Lord, that's good. Someone knocks you to the ground and a bright light shines in the middle of the day and, and blinds you. I'm thinking, Lord's probably a good response. Amen? And he says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now what's interesting about this is not only was Paul saved, but I believe the way that he was saved is a picture of what's going to happen to the Jews in the end times. Because if you read in 1 Timothy or actually just, and it says there, however, for this reason, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, I obtain mercy that in me, first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to the, those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So the way that Paul was saved would be a pattern for the way that the Jews would be saved in the end. So how does that pattern work out? How does this pattern work? Well, we can relate to it spiritually again, we can't really relate to the way Paul was saved. How many of you guys, God showed up in your living room and blinded you, and then that's how you got saved? How many got saved that way? That'd be none of us, right? Now, at the same time, he got a hold of our lives just as clearly, but can you imagine if you're driving in your car and all of a sudden all you saw was a light and it blinded you and, and you ended up in a ditch and you were blind and, and God started speaking to you directly? That'll get your attention, amen? Well, that's what happened to Paul and while we can't relate to it, again, physically, we can spiritually, but guess what? This is a picture of what will happen to the Jews. Because Saul was riding along, he heard him audibly, he was blinded by him, and he was thrown to the ground. So too, as he was on his way to persecute them, the same thing is going to happen to the Jews. In Zechariah chapter 12, it says this, Suddenly the Lord will appear, and will strike every horse with confusion. What was Paul writing? Riding a horse. And like Paul, Israel will realize they've erred greatly and will turn to him and be saved. Zechariah 12.10 says, Then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Then they will mourn for him, as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him, as one who grieves for a firstborn. Paul was simply a foreshadow of what will happen to the nation prophetically. Israel's going to see him the way Paul saw him, and finally they're going to say, Lord. And so this is exactly what will happen to Israel, but guess what? It's not going to happen till the Great Tribulation. During that time, we'll talk about this in a moment, but the way that Paul was saved was a foreshadowing of the way that the Jews will be saved, and will, there will be a mass number of them that will come to know Christ in the end times. Nothing happens by chance in the Bible. So Paul's saying, look at me, consider my conversion. It's a sign of things to come. God is not done with Israel yet. Paul's speaking to them. He's not done with them. He could say, you know what, you guys have been in rebellion so long, I'm through with you. Praise God that he's a God of mercy. Praise God he's a God of grace. I'm glad he didn't say that to me. And I'm glad he didn't say it to you either. Maybe you're here today and you've been really struggling in your walk. God loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The word there, foreknew, could also be he chose. So God chose Israel as his nation of chosen people. But I want you to notice that even though he chose them, he did not force them to have a relationship with him. Too often people say, well, if I've been chosen, well, then I'm forced to love him. No, you're not. God gives you the opportunity to know Him, but you must accept Him individually. They're His chosen people, but they must still respond on their own. He will not force Himself on anyone. Paul says again, don't just look at my life personally, but check out history. And he's going to point them back to another man. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now remember the prophet Elijah. Those of you who went to Israel with us, we sat on Mount Carmel, where 1 Kings 19 took place. One of the greatest 
victories ever. This was awesome. The prophets of Baal, right? They worshiped the god Baal, the god of the sun, right? And they worshiped, and they made sacrifices of babies to this god. And it was the god that brought rain and, and brought fertility. And Elijah went into their temple and kicked all their statues down. You gotta like Elijah. Go Elijah, right? You gotta like this guy, right? I can't wait to see him in heaven. Can you imagine going in and just kicking all their statues down? What about it, right? God's on my side. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what. You get your, you get your prophets, and we'll go up on Mount Carmel, and we're going to put a big altar there. And we're going to put sacrifices on the altar, and we're going to pour water on the sacrifice, and then you guys pray and ask your God to bring down fire, and then I'll pray and ask my God to bring down fire, and we'll find out whose God is God. And we know what happened is the 400 prophets of Baal all day long cried out, oh, right? And this is the first sign of trash talk ever because Elijah says, well, surely he's a god. Maybe he's napping, right? Read it. It says it. He even says at one point, maybe he's in the bathroom. A trash talk, right? You don't serve a god. He's dead. These 400 guys started cutting themselves and crying out and crying out. And it went on all day long. Then Elijah knelt down and prayed, and what did God do? Fire came down from the sky and not only consumed the sacrifice, but licked up all the water that was surrounding the sacrifice. And then God commanded through Elijah that all the prophets of Baal would be put to death, all 400 of them. Now this is a pretty awesome victory. You'd think that Elijah after that would be on fire for God, literally, amen? But what does he do instead? Queen Jezebel says, when she finds out about this, she says, God do to me also if I don't have that man's head. And so what does Elijah do? He runs away and hides. This guy who faced 400 prophets of Baal ran away from one angry woman. <laughs> Guys, you're not the only one that's done that, right? So here's the reality. Can you imagine that? He, fa- he goes in and kicks idols down, and he faces 400 prophets of Baal, and one woman's after him. Oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> and he ran and he hid in a cave. And while he was hiding in a cave, God shows up and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's paraphrased, but that's pretty close, right? And Elijah, this mighty prophet of God, says, you know what? I'm the only one on your side. Everybody else is against me, and it's just me, Lord. You know what? you got to bring fire down on Israel. That's basically what he did. He's praying against Israel. Nice pastor, right? Would you like it if I was praying against you guys all week? Wouldn't that be great? You know what, Lord? Just smoke them. <laughs> I'll come late to church. I'm just tired of them. Just smoke them all. Can you imagine? And that's what Elijah did. He said, you know what? Lord, I'm the only one who's following you. It's just me. And by the way, if you ever get into the place where you think you're the only one serving God, nobody's as holy as me. You ever met anybody like that? I meet them all the time. You know, nobody's as holy as I am. You know, the rest of you guys just haven't got it figured out yet. You need to be more like me. You know, I, I heard Pastor Dave, I heard that, you know, you drink Cokes or something. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Oh, man, there's caffeine. That's unholy. You shouldn't be doing that. Hey, I heard one time that, you know, and I hear you have a car. You shouldn't have a car. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? They got these standards, and it's super legalistic, and I'm, and I'm the only one that's holy, and nobody else is, and you don't measure up to my standard. By the way, if, that, if you start to think that way, you're wrong. Amen? You know what? If you got to the place where you were more holy than other people, instead of telling people how holy you were, you'd be praying for everybody and living a Christ-like example in front of them. Amen? You wouldn't walk around pointing fingers at people. Well, here's Elijah going, I'm the only one left. Everybody else is against us. It's just you and me, God. And you know what? They're chasing me. I'm hiding in the... God, you're almost out of business. I'm your last hope. That's what he says. Now look what God says. I love this. Our God's so awesome. Look at verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? So what did God say? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hey, Elijah, you think you're special? I got 7,000 more just like you. I got 7,000 more guys who didn't bow their knee to Baal either. I just chose to use you. And too often, again, we can make the mistake of thinking that somehow only we are the ones that are holy, or we somehow have achieved something greater than others. And what he's saying here 
is look at, look at even Baal. Or look at Elijah. Elijah, he's, he's talking to the children of Israel. He's saying, look, God preserved Israel. And look, even Elijah wanted to get rid of you guys and prayed against you. And God said, no. Why? Because God is not through with Israel. He still has a plan for them going forward. Even when Elijah the prophet prays against the children of Israel, God refuses to touch them. He brought fire down from the sky, but he would not harm his children because he still, again, has a remnant. Again, even though they appeared spiritually bankrupt, there were 7,000 people who were serving God. If you're at work and you feel like you're alone, hey, in Santa Cruz, sometimes as a Christian, you can feel outnumbered, and, and hey, we are, amen? But you know what? If God is for us, who can be against us, amen? And you're not the only one, and God, God is mightier and greater than any enemy that we will ever face. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. As in Elijah's day, so too in Paul's day, he's saying there's a believing remnant among the children of Israel. Even though Israel's in rebellion, still in the midst of that rebellious nation, there are those who love and serve the true and living God. How many of you ever heard of a group called Jews for Jesus? You ever heard of them? You go to Israel, there's Christian churches popping up all over Jerusalem and all over Israel. There is a remnant of those whose eyes have been opened to the truth of who the true and living God is. And the same is true in our country, where we've become a godless nation, there is still a remnant that is here, a percentage of people that do love the true and living God. Verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. That's a mouthful. Huh? What's he saying here? You know what, our salvation or the fact that there is a remnant of people that love God is not because they're really holy and they try really hard. It's because of God's grace. It's because of God's grace. It's by grace we've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know what's amazing to me? Every other religion on the planet is man working his way to heaven by doing good works. Every one of them. Buddhism, the Muslims, I, we can name them all. It's works, works. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, it's works. You've got to go knock on doors. You've got to ride your bike around with your, you know, with your tie on and a name tag, right? You've got you to go hand out magazines. You've got right, you to do this, you've got to do this. And you've got to keep all these rules so you can get into heaven. And the reality is, what did Jesus say? To die, which means what? It is part of the way done. There's step one. Is that what he said? He said it is finished. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And you know what? He's saying it's by grace, not works, that there's a remnant in Israel. It's by grace, not works, that there's a remnant in Santa Cruz. It's God who deserves all the glory. He did all the work, and now what we do is a fruit of a transformed life. We don't do work so God will love us. We do work because God loves us. It's a natural outpouring of who we are. It's not trying to get brownie points with God. I better go to, you know, I was really... You know, I, 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 I lost my temper twice this week. I was cussing. I better go to church on Sunday and even at the scale, right? That's not how it works, amen? Now, I'm glad you're here. If you came because of that, well, God bless you. I'm glad you're here, amen? But the reality is that your sin has been paid for. You ask God to forgive you, and he will. But you come to church on Sunday to know him better, to spend time in his word, to worship him, amen? And so it's not scoring brownie points with God. And grace and works are mutually exclusive. It's either grace or works. If it's, if it's grace, then works are of no effect. And if it's works, grace has, is of no value. It can't be both. It's not grace plus works. So remember, it's not grace plus works or grace or works. Again, it's faith that works. Amen? When you fall in love with the Lord, the works are a natural outpouring. It's by grace that we have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, he's speaking about the nation as a whole, and seeking to be, to be accepted by God based on their good works. They have failed miserably. And right now, Israel walks in total blindness. Today, when you go to Israel, you will see that it's all based on works that they believe that they are, are in good standing before God. It breaks your heart when you see people with prayer shawls on with their prayers and just 
doing all of this for hours on end to somehow win God's favor. If I just do this enough hours, if I just get close enough to where the temple used to be, if I can get by the wailing wall and I can just pray these prayers over and over long enough, then somehow I'll earn God's favor. The same can be true where people pray, you know, they pray the rosary or pray repetitive prayer of any kind and try to somehow pray enough so God will start to listen. That's not our God. We don't browbeat God into things, amen? The Bible says not to pray with vain repetition. God doesn't want us to get, and by the way, you don't have to say, you know, thou wast, you know, that's not how we pray, amen? We don't come up and try to be eloquent. God just wants, you know, sometimes a good prayer is help. That's a good prayer. A good prayer is just, Lord, you know, help me. Can I tell you that when I study at night, that, I, that comes out of my mouth a lot. I'm studying, and I'm, I'm, I've been maybe spent hours on one verse, and I'm really struggling, and literally, out loud, I'll say, Lord, help. I just not, help me. And you know what? God hears that prayer. He understands our heart. He just wants, again, do you want your kids to come and sit up in your lap and start speaking to you in 18th century English? Oh, dearest father. <laughs> you want him to crawl up in your lap and say, Daddy, right? Amen? Mommy. And that's how God is with us. He wants us just to come and share our heart openly. Not, we don't have to take prayer lessons to speak with eloquence before God. He just wants us to come and share our heart. And so we see here that, sadly, Israel has been blinded. And they've been blinded. And it's so sad because... There's one guy that, it just kills me, he's got the, he knows the Bible as well as I do. He's got a shop in Israel, and every time I go there, I go sit in his shop, and I don't know why I do this, but I spend two hours talking to him, and every verse I start to share, he completes it. He knows the Bible forward, backward, and sideways, but he does not know the God of the Word. And you talk to him, and he's so blind. You turn to Isaiah 53. And it's such a clear picture of the crucifixion. And you read it to him and say, dude, is that the cross or what? Oh, I don't think so. He's pierced. What is that? Oh, well, the Messiah is going to be pierced, but not on the cross. He's lifted up. Where else are you lifted up when you're pierced? That'd be on the cross, amen? And you go through and read verse after verse after verse after verse. Like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. That's exactly what Jesus did. And you read verse after verse, and they sit there, and their eyes are just blinded over. It breaks your heart. And you know what? We need to continue to pray for Israel. Amen? We need to continue to pray that their eyes will be open to the truth. But sadly, though they're extremely religious, and even though they're really zealous, they're extremely blind. Remember what happened with Pharaoh? The Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Ten times he hardened his heart. And then the eleventh time, what does it say? God hardened his heart. Why are the Jews blind? Because they've turned their eyes away from God. Now, again, not all Jewish people. There are many Jews who've come to know Christ. I'm talking about the nation as a whole. But I want to say this. Our nation's not far behind. Amen? Our nation is very blind to the true and the living God. Verses 8 through 10. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes they should not see and ears they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they, sh- so they do not see and bow down their back always. Now, this is a great thing to do, guys. When you're sharing with somebody, you know what he takes them to? Scripture. He's speaking to them. He's writing a letter to them. And he takes them to Old Testament Scripture. When you're sharing your faith with somebody, it's good to certainly share your testimony and share your heart, but make sure you share, share Scripture. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, not the words of Dave. Amen? It's the Word of God that transforms lives. That's why we need to meditate on the Word and know what the Word says so that we can share the Word with others. If we don't read it ourselves, it's going to be impossible for us to share it with others. He says their table became a snare. Their table was, again, where they did their rituals. They lit candles and they had prayer shawls and ceremonial cleansing. But sadly, they knew about the, 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 the Word or the God of the Word, but they, did not, they knew the Word of God, but not the God of the Word. They knew what the Word said, they didn't understand who it pointed to. Again, so sad that their eyes are blind. And we see the same thing today, as so many people know about God, but they don't know Him personally and intimately. You know what, when you feel outnumbered at work, at school, in your neighborhood, be praying for those people that their eyes will be opened. Amen? Because God will still do that. 
Now, what is the result of their rejection? Look at verse 11. If I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. When did God turn His focus completely to the Gentiles? Now, has it always been God's desire that the Gentiles be saved? What's the answer? Yes. It's His desire that none should perish, no, not one. Okay? But when did the focus turn completely to the Gentiles? When Israel rejected him completely. He said, you know what? I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Even Paul, where did he go first? To who? To the Jews. He went to the synagogue and they kicked him out. What did he say? I'm going to the Gentiles. And because they rejected him, then the word has come to the Gentile nations instead. And that's the result of their rejection. Now, verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? Hey, the fact that they have fallen away has been an opportunity for us to come to know God better. But you know what? Imagine what it's going to be like when the Jewish nation comes to know God. Imagine what's going to happen in the world. Now, the reality is, we're going to see if we have time to get through it today, we're going to see that that's not going to happen until you and I are in heaven. Just to catch... Here's what's going to happen, guys. Do you know that there's a rapture of the church? Do you know that it could happen any day? Today's the day of salvation, and if you don't know the Lord, don't leave here without Him. You can, you can leave here without an American Express card, but you better have the Lord. Amen? And here's the reality, that before the Antichrist is made known, that there's going to be a trump of God, and those who know God are going to be caught away, snatched away, raptizo means snatched away, raptured. And then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation on earth. And it's during that time that the Jews are first going to be duped by the Antichrist. And three and a half years in, the abomination of desolation is going to take place. And when that happens, they're going to finally realize that they've missed God and they've been following the Antichrist. And shortly after that, God's going to reveal Himself to them. And they're going to enter into the millennial reign. And we're going to rule and reign with God on earth for a thousand years. It's going to happen. It's in the Bible, okay? We'll get more detail when we get to Revelation. Now what it says, what should we do? As, as Gentiles, what does God want us to do as far as the Jewish people? How does God want us to reach out to them? Verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh to save some of them. Now Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. And it's interesting because he was the greatest Jew of Jews, and it would have made sense for him to go to the Jews. And it would have made a lot more sense for Peter the fisherman to go to the Gentiles. And instead, God sent Peter to the Jews, and He sent Paul to the Gentiles. Why? So that God would be glorified. Because Paul was, the, Paul was this real elite guy, very intelligent, right? He was bordering on a genius, and he, he knew all the Jewish laws, and he would have fit in so perfect with the Jews, but if he had, people might have said it was Paul. Instead, they sent Peter, this big fisherman, right? Uneducated fishermen. And instead, they take Paul and they send him to the Gentiles that God might be glorified. But you know what? It cost Paul a lot to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was beaten by the Jews. If you remember in Acts 20, I won't spend a lot of time with it, but back in Acts, remember when he got up and he began to share his testimony? And he shared his testimony with this huge crowd, and as soon as he said, I'm to take the gospel to the Gentiles, what did they do? They said, kill him! Because it's only for us. The gospel is only for us. It's not for the Gentiles. But look what we're called to do. We're called to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, how in the world would you and I provoke the unsaved to jealousy? What would make them jealous? Can I tell you what, make, what would make them jealous? Can I tell you the thing that doesn't happen enough in my life, but I wish happened more, but it does happen sometimes. Sometimes people will be watching your life and they'll say, Man, do you have joy? Man, no matter what happens, you're just, you're focused, all, you're happy all the time. Not that you're perfect, but boy, you've got joy. Boy, you seem to have peace all the time, and nothing seems to bother you. Where do you get such faith like this? And then people ask me, you know, I wish I had faith like you have faith. Now, I'm, you know, touch not the glory. It's only by God's grace. It doesn't happen enough because your pastor blows it just like we all do. But that's what provokes the Jews to jealousy. If we can just say, look, we've been born again. We're going to heaven. And man, do we have joy. Amen? 
No more wheelbarrow full of rules with heaven at the end. We don't have to keep 268 laws. Walking around, oh, you know, with guilt and burdened and heavy. He who the sun sets free is free indeed, amen? As Christians, we should be the happiest people on the planet, amen? Nobody's happier than me. Nobody. You know why? Because I know where I'm going, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. When I close my eyes on earth, it's just moving day, and I'm going to wake up in heaven, amen? And so often, that's what provokes them to jealousy, is that they're walking around trying to work, and they're under this heavy burden, and I've got to go keep these rules. And they look and say, hey, we're free. Amen? He who the sun sets free is free indeed. Hey, if you're here today, and you feel burdened and overwhelmed by life, can I introduce you to Jesus? Because you know what? His yoke is easy, and his burden is what? It's light. You come into a relationship with him, you don't have to be burdened anymore. You don't have to walk around struggling and striving and trying to do better. Just say, Lord, help. And he will. And a spirit will come to live inside of you. Verse 15. For if they're being cast away as a reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When them being cast away brought salvation to the world, what will it be like when the Jews finally come to know Christ? Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And the root is holy, so are the branches. The first fruit, the first place that the gospel went, the first place that the law was delivered was to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Moses had the law, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these were the fathers of the faith. And through them, all of Israel heard the truth. And they were the first ones to have it. And it's saying there, if the, if the lump is holy, then all that it touches will be holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. And the Bible says in John 15, that Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abides in me bears much fruit. You take a branch and you stick it into a vine and fruit starts growing out of it, it tells you that it's grafted in. You take a branch out of a vine and you drop it on the ground, it's a stick. Amen? And it bears no fruit. And what he's saying is that, again, if we're grafted into him, we will bear fruit. But look what it says here. We're almost done. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. The wild olive tree, that's the Gentiles. He said if you guys who were not, the, the olive tree or the fig tree in the Bible always points to Israel, the nation. And he says if you guys, the wild olive tree, were grafted in and they were broken off, we have nothing to boast about because it's not because that, that we're grafted in that we're saved. It's not because of the good works we've done, but it's because of the fact that we're grafted into Christ. It's because we're linked to Him that we're saved, and we have nothing to boast about. You know what, guys? We should never be arrogant about our salvation. Amen? We should never be self-righteous. Why? Did you do anything to earn your salvation? What did you do? Nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Were you hanging on a cross? Did you raise from the dead on the third day? I don't think so. Amen? Jesus did it all. To Him be all the glory. And you know what? When we talk about our salvation, we should be humble and broken about it. Amen? We should be saying, man, I was lost, and now I'm, I came to know the Lord. I used to try to do it my own way, and I, I failed over and over, and then I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and now I've been born again. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And since we've been saved by grace, we should not boast. Verse 19 and 20. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Why were the branches of the nation of Israel broken off? What does it say there? Because of what? Unbelief. And why were we grafted in? What does it say? By what? By faith. Salvation is by faith. It's not by birthright. It's not by the good works you do. It's not by who your parents are. It doesn't matter, you know, I'm a preacher's kid, but that doesn't make me a Christian. It doesn't matter if your grandparents were missionaries. It doesn't matter, you know, how, quote, holy your family is. It's got to be an intimate, personal relationship, one-on-one -on -one between you and God. And it says here, don't be haughty, but fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't be arrogant. Don't be self-righteous. You know what, when you see someone being self-righteous, does it make you want to follow their God? Someone walks around acting holier than thou, 
and looking down their nose at you? Does that make you want to know the God they know? We should never do that because, again, without Him, we can do nothing. A couple more verses here. We're going to stop. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Again, the cross of Christ is either a place of judgment or a place of redemption. I love to ask people, can I encourage you to do this? Next time you see someone with a cross around their neck, ask them why they wear it. You'll be amazed at the answers you get. It matches my purse. I've had that. It goes really well with my watch. I thought it was pretty sweet. I ask him, you know, is that a piece of jewelry? Does it mean something to you? Because the cross is a place of either judgment or redemption. If you don't know Christ, it's a place of judgment. And if you know him, it's a place of mercy and forgiveness. Amen? And so when we look at the cross, again, this is what it's saying right here. Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. You know what? He looks at you and He loves you and He wants you to walk with Him. And again, you can either have an intimate relationship with the Lord and when you think about the Lord, He's a blessing and He's your best friend. Or you can walk around viewing God as a faraway distant God who only wants to harm you. I hear people talk about God that way and they don't know, they don't know my best friend. Because God, Jesus is my best friend. I'm closer to Him than I am my wife or my kids. He's my best friend. He walks with me all day, every day. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. You know, I tell you guys this a lot, and I'm just going to share it from my heart for a second, and we're going to close. You know that I tell you guys all the time how much the Lord loves you. And I, I don't think I can tell you that enough. But you know, last night I was studying, and I was you know, writing in my notes how much the Lord loves you, and the Lord stopped me and said, Dave, I love you. And I started weeping. You love me, you know? We need to remember that, guys. You know what? If you think about how much God loves you, you won't run away from Him. You'll run to Him when things get difficult. Amen? When you realize how much He loves you, He numbers the hairs in your head. You are so precious to Him. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Not just have you pop in for an hour on Sunday. Not just, you know, maybe pray, you know, a a Holy Spirit, you know, quick missile prayer over your Wheaties in the morning. You know, he wants to have an intimate relationship with you. He loves you so much. I think about how much I love my kids, and I'm an imperfect dad. I would die for my children. I'm sure all you mom and dads feel the same way. Amen? You die for them in a minute. And you know what? I'm an imperfect dad. How much does God love me? He did die for me, and he died for you. And I want you to know, and don't forget that when things get tough, remember that he loves you, and he's a gracious God. And you know what? When you walk around in His love, you know what you're going to do to unbelievers? You're going to provoke them to jealousy. They're going to say, man, you know God. I want to know God like you know God. You don't just know about Him, but you seem to have an intimate relationship with Him. How are we as Gentiles going to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy? We're going to be so in love with the Lord, they're going to want what we have. Amen? You know what? And when you fall in love with the Lord, the things of this world aren't that important anymore. And it won't matter if your car blows up. It won't matter if you lose your job. It's all right. Is God still God? Is he still in control? Does he still love me? Is he still faithful? Can I still trust him? Can I tell you this? That no matter how great you think God is, he's greater than that. No matter how much, how holy you believe God is, he's more holy than that. No matter how righteous you think God is, he's more righteous than that. And no matter how much you think God loves you, he loves you more than that. Shouldn't that bring peace to our hearts in the midst of difficult times, you guys? Amen? And that should provoke the world around us to jealousy when they see that we don't just know about God, but he's my best friend. I'm hanging with Jesus. I'm a Jesus freak. I'm not ashamed of it. Amen? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The cross either is a a place of redemption or it's a place of judgment. And what he's saying here, he says the exact same thing to them, that it's either the severity of God or the goodness of God. What do you know? The severity of God or the goodness of God? Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? Do you know how much he loves you? Don't leave here without knowing that. And again, even if you've been born again, pray and ask God just to show you the depths of his love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you and we praise you for your love and your grace. And I thank you, Lord, that you reach out to those who are yet in rebellion, that you're such a merciful God, that you continue to reach out over and over and over. Even if we've been rejecting you for days, weeks, months, years, our entire life, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not because we were perfect, not because we were good, not because we were better than others. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that does not know the depths of your love, the Lord that looks at the cross as a place of judgment and severity, not a place of grace and mercy and forgiveness, that Lord, right now, you would just open their eyes to their need for you. Lord, that they can walk out of here knowing your love, having been transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit coming to live inside of their lives. With every head bowed, if you already know the Lord, just be praying for those who don't. The Bible says, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And if you're here, maybe you brought by friend, or maybe even going to church for a long time, but you've never truly experienced and known what it means to have an intimate relationship with God, like I've been talking about today. The kind of love and intimacy that would even provoke those around you to jealousy because you know Him so well. It's real simple. You did, the Bible says you just simply say, Lord, I want you to be my best friend. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for my sin, to fill me with your spirit, and He will. And you'll have that joy now, and you'll have the promise of heaven to come. But the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So all I'm going to ask you to do, I'm not going to ask you to join a church or do anything else, but simply just by raising your hand, say, you know what, I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. I want to have that kind of love relationship with God. If you're here today and that's your heart, I just want you to raise your hand, and I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you. Is there anybody here at all? Don't leave here without him. He loves you so much. Is there anybody here at all? You know, know him intimately. Anybody. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord. And I do pray for, for each person here, Lord. Just help us grow in, go into a deeper relationship with you, Lord. To really just have that supernatural love relationship that you desire that we have. That it wouldn't be a religion, but it would be a relationship. There would be intimacy with you. Lord, I pray that, that we would provoke the world to jealousy as we'd have such, such incredible joy in our walk with you. That, Lord, we would simply be, tra- we'd be conduits for your Holy Spirit to shine brightly through to a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We worship you, Lord. We thank you again that you, you reached out to us over and over and over. We thank you that you were patient with us. And, Lord, that you gave us every opportunity, Lord, and that when we did turn, that you received us as your children. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen. Let's stand and close the worship songs.